I hope in your way in you picked up a handout for the sermon or sermon outline for this evening. This evening we're starting a, a new series looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And uh, this evening will be an introductory sermon to this. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 9 to 20. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Listen, this is God's word. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it, as it refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, I've mentioned before a number of the differences between the UK and the USA. Uh, one difference that you may not be aware of is how mail is delivered. In the UK, the mailman, or the postman as we call him, he delivers the mail through your door. So every front door of a house in the UK has a slot for the postman to deliver the letters right through your door, rather than a box at the end of your drive. But whether you get your mail through your door or whether you get your mail in the mailbox, I wonder, maybe kids, you can answer this. What is the first thing you want to know when you receive these letters? Yes, Reuben? Who it's from. Exactly. Well done. Who it's from. Who it's from makes all the difference. If it's from your bank or your electric company, well, that's important, but you think, 
I'll deal with it later. Or if it's junk mail, maybe offering you a new credit card, well, you happily discard it in the bin. If it's a personal letter, maybe you grab a cup of coffee and you sit down and you enjoy reading this letter and finding out news from friends or family. Those are the best pieces of mail. What if you received a piece of mail that had the presidential seal on it? And it is personally addressed to you. Well, you wouldn't throw it in the bin. You wouldn't put it off till later to read it. No, you would open it up straight away. The president is writing to me. I want to hear what he has to say. Well, over the next few weeks, we'll be considering not one letter, but seven letters addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And likewise, it's important to consider who these letters are from. These letters are from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And today in our passage, which serves as an introduction to these seven letters, we see the glory of Christ, but also the nearness of Christ. And so I want you to consider in your times of difficulty, you are to see Christ, the center of these letters, in all of his glorious splendor but also that he is near to you to encourage you to persevere in your walk. So children, I encourage you to please draw a picture, and I'd like you to draw a picture of the seven lampstands. And remember, these lampstands, they represent the church, and Christ is in the midst of his church. So firstly, you're facing difficulty and tribulation. You're facing difficulty and tribulation. Now, the book of Revelation is often met with confusion and mystery. There are different ways to interpret this this book. There is a preterist approach that is to believe the book of Revelation was fulfilled at the time of 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Then there is the historist approach that teaches that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled the past 2,000 years. And this approach says that within the book of Revelation, you see prophecies of the Reformation or the rise of Islam, even the spiritual awakenings by Whitfield and Wesley. And this approach was very popular at the time of the Reformation. Now it's become unpopular because it leads to a constant interpreting and then reinterpreting of the book. One commentator says that this approach died the death of a thousand interpretations. Well, then there is the futurist approach. And that's to say the book of Revelation is all about the future. It's all still to happen. It's a prophecy for the end times. And this approach has been made popular with dispensational writings like like that of the Left Behind series. And then finally, there is the approach of the idealistic approach. And it's to see the book of Revelation as always speaking to the church, as always being relevant, relevant. That the book of Revelation, that it's not specific, but it speaks of an ongoing battle between good and evil, and that Christ is the ultimate victor. That Christians are expecting to experience what the believers in this book experienced. And then you can also hold to a mixture of these views. Uh, most commonly preterist that it is for the early church, but idealist that it also for, continues to speak to the church today. 
And so it's crucial to understand that this book is relevant to the Christians who first received it. It was a help to them. These seven churches who received these letters, they found it an encouragement, and they found it a challenge to, to them. And we see briefly what they were going through in our passage. John is recording this, and he describes himself as a brother and as a companion to those he was writing to. They both know tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, meaning they both they all know the grace of God through Christ, that they're part of God's kingdom, but they also know tribulation, the suffering that comes as a result of being a Christian. Now for John, that's obvious. Here he is on the island of Patmos, and he's been exiled to this island. At the end of verse 9, we read why. It's on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, the beloved disciple of Christ, he was facing persecution for his witness of Christ. And that is why he is stuck on this island. Now, he wasn't martyred like the rest of the apostles, but he's still facing persecution. He's kept under arrest on this island to prevent him from traveling and from preaching the gospel. Those he's writing to are also under tribulation. This is a time of persecution. Most likely it was that of the Roman persecution. The Romans were demanding that everyone worship the emperor. And that's because they believed the emperor to be divine. They were to treat him as Lord. Well, this put the Christians in a dilemma. They could not bow down to Caesar as Lord. No, Christ is their Lord. They will bow down only to him. And the result was they lost their jobs. They even lost their lives. They became second-class citizens in the Roman Empire. But it wasn't just outward persecution. There was turmoil within the church. False teachers had infiltrated the church. For example, the Judaizers in Galatia, they taught false doctrine. And this false doctrine, it led to division. It created confusion. And ultimately, it was a distraction from the truth of the gospel. And finally, the church was living in a world of wickedness. And it faced temptation that the world offers. And so there were many distractions that were taking them away from the gospel. And isn't that all too familiar to us today? There is a constant temptation that we face from the world. With our various devices, we have all the vices of this world available at our fingertips. All around us is immorality, as being championed as something to celebrate. Morality is looked upon as something archaic. The church is divided into many factions, just like the early church. Teaching in many churches, while it may not be false, it is watered down. It's Christianity light. And the result is that Christians are not growing. Now, we're not facing persecution like the early church, nor are we facing persecution like other parts of the world today, but we are facing a form of persecution. We are being told that you're no longer relevant. It's better if you keep quiet. Your ideas are not fit for today's progressive world. Keep that personal and out of the public forum. And so we are facing various difficulties just like the early church. 
Well, secondly, Christ is concerned for you in your difficulty. Verse 11. So Jesus is concerned for you just like he is for the early church. And we see this concern in that he speaks to John. And he gives John specific instructions. John's ministry is not over. He would have a writing ministry from this island. And it would begin by writing to the seven churches. So despite John's difficulty, God would use him to bring a message of hope to the church. It happened on the Lord's day. John was filled with the Holy Spirit, which gave him a full prophetic authority. He heard a loud voice, like that of a trumpet, commanding him to write down this message, to send it to the churches. And so this is a voice of authority. It had to be heeded. A trumpet call is used to get people's attention, to call people to gather. But notice that he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And this speaks of Jesus being eternal. Everything finds its completion in Christ. Jesus is the goal of all things. Scrivener writes, it's not just all things come from Christ, they're also destined for him. Redemption is not the salvation of creation towards another goal. It is the bringing of all things back to their source and meaning. We are made by Christ and we are headed for Christ. So when you acknowledge Christ with this elevated authority as Alpha and Omega in your life, what he has to say can't be ignored. It must be heeded. And Jesus commands which churches to send it to. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now these are seven literal churches. They really did exist. And you can see that on your map. But the number seven is also symbolic of completeness, of wholeness. And so these seven churches were symbolic of the churches throughout all time and all space. And so these letters are as relevant to you today in Bloomington as they are to Columbus next door, as they are to Sherwood Oaks in in town, as to any Christian church today or in the past or in the future. And so consider this. Christ is writing this letter to the church to encourage the church, to challenge the church, to bring the church back to himself. And his means is a letter. Often as Christians, we look for the spectacular. We want a vision or a dream or a prophecy, some code or a sign, some divine intervention. But here we have something much clearer. Christ has written a letter through his servant John. And in these seven letters to the churches, they're repeatedly calling on the church to repent of their sins and keep their eyes on Jesus. And this is true for the church today. Many churches are weak. Many churches are losing their way, getting caught up with various programs or ideas that they think this will get them back on track. But instead, it's simple. It's keeping your focus on Christ. And so whatever it is that is distracting you from Christ and from his glory, that must be removed. So Christ has a concern for the church. He sent you a letter. Well, thirdly, 
Christ is near to his church, verses 12 to 13. So John now sees the glory of Christ. We read of how he sees one like the Son of Man in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now we must remember that the book of Revelation is a picture book. The same way that we give our children picture books, they're much easier for them to understand. Well, the book of Revelation is a picture book that's given to us to help us easily understand what Jesus is teaching. And here we understand that Christ is with his church. The seven golden lampstands, they are the seven churches. As I said, that represents the whole universal church. And the church is the shinest light of the gospel into the darkness of this world. And right in the center is Christ, the Son of Man. He is with his church. Before leaving his disciples to go up into heaven, he gave them the great commission, but he also told them, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And so remember that. Christ is with you. That became evident at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to dwell with God's people. Now when our children go off to college or university, we often tell them to be careful If you ever find yourself out at night, make sure you have company. Don't walk alone. Or maybe you've been in a trying situation and you bring a friend to support you, to stand with you. Well, likewise for the church, Christ is with his church, but it's in an even greater way than any of our friends can be with us. So remember, you're not alone. And whatever the difficulty, and whatever trial you're going through, Christ is with you. And he will enable you to remain strong. And we certainly read stories of this from the early church, of much bravery in the face of much suffering. Even just consider Stephen, the first martyr. In Acts 6, we read, before he was stoned, we read, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen, the other martyrs, were brave in the face of persecution because they knew that Christ was with them. That's the encouragement that you and I have. Never think you're alone. Remember, Christ is with you. Well, fourthly, You are to see Christ in his glorious splendor, verses 13 to 16. So John sees Christ in the midst of the lampstands, and he calls him the Son of Man. And this means more than just simply his humanity. For this title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7. And in Daniel, the Son of Man is described as receiving universal and eternal dominion. The Son of Man, therefore, he is more than a man. He is God. He is ruler. He is king. And his rule is one of majesty and might. And John describes his appearance, and it's very similar to Daniel's appearance of the Son of Man. His clothes are of this long robe and a golden band. And that's similar to how the high priest would dress. And so Christ is our great high priest. He therefore is very different from us, but he's someone who is great and wondrous, who brings us to the Father. White hair. 
Well, if you've got white hair, that points to your wisdom. And so we see here, white hair points to infinite wisdom and divine wisdom. In the letters to the churches, there is a repeated phrase of, I know. Well, Christ knows his church. We have the comfort that Christ knows our difficulties. He knows our sufferings. And so we can be assured of his help. Eyes like flames of fire. Well, that means he sees through everything and everyone. Now, we're very good at putting up a pretense, a facade. And yet, we cannot fool Christ. Christ sees our agenda. He knows our heart's desire. Feet like burnished brass refined in a furnace, meaning he will crush those who are against him. and Nothing can topple him over. His voice is like the roar of many waters. When I was young, our family went to Niagara Falls, and I remember the noise being absolutely terrifying. It was so loud, it was inescapable. Well, Christ's voice will deafen those who speak against him. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And this suggests that even the stars are like play objects to him. They're like marbles in his hand. Verse 20, we read again of Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand. And the seven stars refers to the angels of the seven churches. Now, there is a variety of opinions as to what the term angel means here. Very simply, it would be messengers. Messengers who would bring and deliver these letters to the churches. Possibly even the pastors who would bring this message to the congregation. Being in his right hand... Well, that suggests they're in a position of safety. Nothing would harm them. He would protect them. He would ensure that the message would get through to the seven churches. They're not to be afraid, but speak the truth. From his mouth comes a sharp, two-edged sword. His words are able to penetrate our hearts. They're not always comforting words, but words that can rebuke and condemn and finally judge. We often think of Jesus being meek and mild, but here we see that he is powerful, that his words will break even the hardest of hearts. His face was like the sun, shining full of strength. If you've ever driven into direct sunlight, you'll know just how disorientating it is. Well, Christ is so glorious that you have to stop. You have to take in the glory. That's what happened at Christ's transfiguration. His glory was revealed. Normally, his glory is hidden. But here again in Revelation, just like in the, at the transfiguration, Christ is completely unveiled and we see the fullness of his glory and his majesty. So here we have this picture of an invincible warrior if you're in a war, you want to be on his side. This is the glory of Christ. And since he is in the midst of the church, he is on your side. There is no need to be afraid of this world. Often when we think of Jesus, we lose sight of this picture of an invincible warrior. Instead, we consider someone who's weak. Artists' impressions of Jesus, they focus on his humanity on his weakness, on his frailty. And so we don't see him for who he really is. 
Brooke says he is no longer the humiliated and suffering servant, but the glorified Lord, having received a kingdom and an everlasting dominion from the Father. And so you need to see Christ in all of his glory. Yes, he is encouraging and strengthening his church, but he's also commanding and seeking our obedience to him. So recognize his rule over your life. Too often we see Christ as only a friend, and he is a friend, but he is more than that. He is also your king, one that we would happily and quickly submit to. My children, I'm sure you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it gives a helpful illustration as to who Christ is. Peter and Susan and Lucy are talking to the beavers. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tells the other three children that they will take them to see the king, to see Aslan. And Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you that he is the king, the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susie, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, Christ is not safe, but he is good. He is the king. You are to see Christ. Yes, he is gracious, but he is awesome. He is glorious. And he demands your trust and your obedience. So see Christ in his glorious splendor. But then finally, Christ encourages you to persevere. Verses 17 to 20. Christ encourages you, the church, to persevere. So how does John respond to this invincible warrior? Well, he falls down at his feet. One day, everyone will bow the knee before Jesus. Even those who are not trusting in him, for then they will acknowledge him as the king. They will bow in submission and in defeat before this invincible warrior. So take the opportunity now to be right with God, to be on Christ's side. And we see that with this interaction that Jesus has with John. John falls on his knees before Jesus, on his, onto his feet. How can John, a sinner, how can he come before this glorious and holy God? He is as if dead, for he is before the judge, and he knows his sin is deserving of death. Well, how does Jesus, this great warrior, see this weak man? Well, we see him comforting him. He lays his right hand on him. He tells him not to fear. John is not to fear. And it's not because that Jesus ignores his sin, but because Jesus has dealt with John's sin. He is the first and the last, we read again. Jesus is eternal. 
He hasn't just arrived and found this world to be a fallen world. No, the fall of mankind, it happened in the garden. And straight away in the garden, we read of a covenant promise that God would save his people by crushing the serpent. Well, Christ would be that serpent crusher. He would establish his kingdom, which would be an eternal kingdom. Kingdoms come and go. People come and go. Christ and his kingdom would be forever. He describes himself as the living one. Yes, Jesus was dead. He did die on the cross. He did pay the price for our sin and our wrongdoing. But that's not the full story. He came back to life. He is living forevermore. He is victorious over death. And knowing that Jesus is alive, well, that's what gives us hope. We read that he has the keys of death and Hades. Well, Jesus has conquered death, not only for himself, but for you, his people. That's why when he addresses the church in Smyrna, he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. I will give you the crown of life. Our greatest enemy is death. But this enemy is one that you do not need to fear for it has been defeated by Christ. What an encouragement. You will receive the crown of life. And so this is enormous comfort when we consider who Christ is. And he is putting his right hand on your shoulder this evening. He is reminding you to look at him, to behold his glory, for you to see him as your savior, who brings you his love, his grace, and his peace. John is to write this message down for the church. The church needs this encouragement. You need this encouragement. And it's a timeless message. So what is it that you are to do in your suffering, in your difficulty? You're not to run to the hills seeking escape from your troubles. That's an easy temptation. But it doesn't resolve anything. You'll only find your trouble again. Or you're not to simply protest louder. That won't solve anything. Instead, it makes things worse. No, you are to fix your eyes on Jesus. You are to see Christ in his glorious splendor. You are also to see that he is near to you. And so he is encouraging you to persevere. Florence Chadwick was the first woman to swim the English Channel between England and France in both directions. And she also attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the Californian coast. And the challenge there was less about the distance as it was about the cold waters of the Pacific Ocean. And to complicate matters, there was this dense fog that lay over the entire area, making it impossible for her to see land. So after about 15 hours in the water and within half a mile of her goal, Chadwick gave up. And later she told a reporter, Look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I might have made it. Well, not long afterwards, she attempted the feat again. Again, there was a mist that obscured the view of the coastline, so she couldn't see the shore. But this time, she made it, because she kept reminding herself that land was there. And with that confidence, she bravely swam on and achieved her goal even breaking the men's record by two hours. Well, take this vision of Christ that John writes. 
and make this your vision of Christ. When you think of Christ, don't think of someone weak, someone dying on the cross, but see him as this invincible warrior, as one who is alive. And remember, he is standing with you. And so acknowledge that it's by his strength that you can persevere, despite the suffering and the difficulty you're going through. So this letter that John writes on Christ's behalf to his church, it is as relevant today as it was to the audience back in the first century. And so in this coming week, with all the uncertainty, sadness, with anger, in your times of difficulty, you are to see Christ in his glorious splendor. You're also to see and know that he is with you to encourage you to persevere. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we face much difficulty, and some of us are going through particular hard times at this moment. And so, Lord, help us to look to Christ, our glorious King, this invincible warrior who has won the victory. Remind us that he is near to each one of us. And so instead of giving up, that we would be encouraged to persevere, to keep going, and to serve him in response. And so we ask for your help in this, especially in this coming week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your blue psalm book to Psalm 57b. Psalm 57b, the psalm recognizes that God is the one who is exalted. He is a glorious God. But in this psalm, we also read of his covenant love. God in his glory. He also loves his people with a covenant love, a love where he promises to be with us and to be our God. So let's praise God with these words, Psalm 57b. Let's stand. 